Hey everybody, Curtis here. This is The Backdrop. We're going to go a little bit more into the marriage metaphor that we talked about in the sermon this past week that's in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Jeremiah and really runs all the way through Jeremiah. It pops up here and there. I am doing away with, for this week, the pithy introduction and upbeat music just because of the nature of the metaphor and some of the subject matter that we're going to dive into around the implications and uh, connotations of domestic violence and those sorts of things. And we're going to dive right in instead. Uh, One thing I did want to talk about a little bit more is this idea of consequences versus punishment. And is Jeremiah describing God punishing Israel? Is that the primary thing that is in view here? Or is it more that God is describing the consequences that are inevitably going to come from the choices that Israel has made? I obviously, from the way I'm setting this up and framing it, think that it's more the latter, that what is described in Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is warning of, what God is warning the people of, what God's warning his bride of in the, in the terms of the metaphor is that there are consequences that are going to come from their decisions to be unfaithful to their spouse. And in the sermon, I talked about the idea that in that cultural context, the ideas of protection and provision would have been primary in this metaphor, that the husband in uh, ancient Israel was making promises to protect and provide for their wife. Again, it's husband-wife, of course, in ancient Israel that we're talking about. And so one thing that comes out of that is insofar as protection and provision are what are in focus in this metaphor, then when you leave your spouse, when Israel leaves her husband, you are also leaving that protection and provision. And so all through the Old Testament, you see stories of God offering supernatural protection and provision for Israel. Manna in the wilderness, water in the wilderness, victory in battles that they have no business winning. Those are all examples of how God comes through by protecting and providing for them. But when you leave that protector and provider, and again, all of this is not saying anything about how we might feel about describing a husband in that way today. That's not the point. The point is in that culture, that's what's being highlighted by the metaphor. And when you leave your protector and your provider, then the inevitable consequence is you're not going to have that protection and provision. You're relying on new spouses or new lovers. And God's whole point in these chapters, Jeremiah's whole warning is those new lovers that you've gone after are empty. They're meaningless. They are like a puff of wind. They cannot protect and provide for you in the way that the living God can. You're going to be at the mercy of the world. What does that mean? Well, when you're a small nation state on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, stuck right in between Egypt and Mesopotamia, being subject to the way that the world works, absent your protector and provider God, is going to mean you're going to get conquered again and again and again, because you are in a desirably strategic position in the middle of empires. And what happens to tiny nation states in the middle of empires is you get destroyed. And I think when you read the book of Jeremiah in detail, what you'll notice is that far more often the language of consequence is showing up. And yes, Babylon is talked about as God's instrument in bringing judgment on God's people. But more often, it's the inevitable consequences of Israel's decisions that are being highlighted. Just to give a couple examples of this from the first uh, few chapters of Jeremiah. In uh, Jeremiah 5, starting in verse 10, It starts with what sounds like God punishing Israel by commanding Babylon or the invader from the north. It's not really named in this uh, chapter, but it says, Go up among 
its, Israel's, vine rows and destroy them, but don't make an end. And this is playing on another image that shows up all through the Old Testament of Israel being like God's vineyard. It shows up in uh, the New Testament as well, where Jesus often uses a vineyard in his parables or even describes the relationship of us with God in terms of a vine and branches and those sorts of things. So God says, go up among its vine rows and destroy them, but don't make an end. Remove its branches. And then this is the key, because those people don't belong to Yahweh. Because Israel's household and Judah's household have totally broken faith with me. So it's not go and do these things because I want to punish them. It's go and do these things because I am not going to protect them anymore. And I think that those are different things in terms of how we think about it, especially when we keep in mind that protection and provision idea that this is the natural consequence of abandoning your protector and provider because you don't belong to that protector and provider anymore. So I think that's going on in verse 10 of chapter 5. I wanted to highlight one more verse um, that I think contributes to this book being read as a book about punishment more than it ought to be. Obviously, the Bible was not written in English. It's translated into English. And a lot of the time, when you translate a book, you make certain theological decisions about what that verse is supposed to mean so that you can convey that meaning in English. It's not that anybody is is doing anything wrong or changing the words of Scripture. They're trying to convey the correct meaning. And so in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 18, the NIV, which is what a lot of us uh, are most used to reading and having uh, be around in the church. Well, let's start in verse 16 of chapter four, actually. Tell this to the nations, proclaim concerning Jerusalem, a besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surrounded her like people guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. And then this is verse 18. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. So that's how most of us would have heard that passage. The destruction of this invading army is is being talked about. And then the the reason for that is your own actions have caused this. This is your punishment. But that's not actually what the Hebrew says. That is an interpretive gloss that the translators of the NIV have put on it. I'm going to read now from the same passage in John Goldengay's translation, which is the one we have been using. And he and a few other uh, commentators that I've read in their, in their commentaries make the point that punishment is not actually the word that is there. So same passage from John Goldengay. Make mention to the nations there. Let it be heard against Jerusalem. Watchers are coming from a far off country. They'll give voice against Judah's cities. Like people guarding the fields, they've come against it all around because it has rebelled against me. Yahweh's words. And then here's verse 18. Your way and your deeds have done these things to you. This is the evil that has come to you because it's bitter, because it has reached your heart. So in Golden Gate's translation, it's a lot clearer that this is is a consequence of your words and your deeds, that this bad thing, this evil has come to you, not this punishment. I think punishment unnecessarily ascribes, I don't know, vindictiveness to God that isn't necessarily there. And I think that's important for this conversation in framing the destruction of Judah in a way that's more accurate to what the book of Jeremiah is actually saying. 
Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted to touch on in a little bit more depth, this idea of consequences versus punishment. And we're going to come back to this a little bit in future sermons as we go through the book of Jeremiah, uh, just because I think it is really helpful in understanding um, who God is in the Old Testament and not having for ourselves a view of an Old Testament God that is somehow fundamentally different from the New Testament God that we see in Jesus, who doesn't seem as interested in punishment and is more filled with grace. I think that that's a false dichotomy, and attending more closely to the actual words of Jeremiah can help us to smooth out that um, difference that we maybe perceive. Okay, the second thing that I wanted to say in this conversation is that it's important for us to always keep in mind that God speaks within a culture, not really from outside of a culture or in opposition of it. God speaks and interacts with people that exist within a certain cultural context. And so part of what that means is that God uses images and words from that culture to make God's points. And when you think about it, this is kind of the only way that things could be done. If God's speaking with some foreign or obsolete metaphors that people aren't going to understand, then God's points aren't going to come across. I know for me, there was a time when I I can't even tell you what the issue was, but I got this sense from God that he was saying to me, so how's that working out for you? You know, kind of like Dr. Phil. And this is helpful for me, at least as, in a, as a way of thinking about this, because God quoting Dr. Phil to me when, and this was back when Dr. Phil was actually a thing on on TV and in the cultural moment, it doesn't mean that God is co-signing everything Dr. Phil says or stands for. God was just using that particular phrase that was familiar to me and had been in the cultural uh, water around me to make a certain point to me that what I was doing was not who I wanted to be or how I wanted to act. And so God is using something with cultural resonance to get a point across, not, again, co-signing everything that that metaphor or that phrase or that person stands for. And the thing is, I think God does this a lot, where God speaks to us in words or phrases that are going to be familiar to us or images that are going to be familiar to us to make certain points, but not to co-sign everything that has to do with that word or phrase or image or all the potential implications or connotations that, that that phrase might come with. And so as we talked about some this weekend, in ancient Israelite culture, there was great fear of an unfaithful wife. That's kind of a hallmark of patriarchal cultures everywhere. And ancient Israel was a highly patriarchal culture, something that I personally don't think aligns with God's views of how people and relationships ought to be. But in this instance, God isn't making a point about the negative aspects of patriarchal culture. God is trying to make a point within a highly patriarchal culture. And so God is going to use words and phrases and images that are going to resonate in that culture, not come with some other image from outside of the culture, because then God's point isn't going to come across in the same way. I guess another way of saying what I'm trying to say is I think that God can speak within patriarchy without co-signing patriarchy. And I think it's important we keep those two separate. And we kind of tried this weekend to model how to take scripture seriously when it comes out of a patriarchal culture and still hear the true things that are there, even within what we would say in in some important ways was an evil culture. Just like, by the way, we would look around at our culture today and say, there are some aspects of this that are an evil culture. 
And I think God might use images today and metaphors today when speaking to us that help get God's point across without completely co-signing on the evil aspects of the culture that God is speaking within. And just a couple of really quick examples of this. There are all sorts of laws in the Old Testament that come with capital punishment, like a disobedient child, it says, ought to be killed. Now, we today look at that as barbaric and that it cannot possibly be the case that God wants disobedient children to be stoned to death. I feel fairly confident in saying that God does not think that is the best way for society to be structured. But they're there in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is speaking to a particular cultural context. And as you can see in the story of scripture, God has God's hands full just trying to get Israel to follow in the broadest sense, trying to completely change every detail of the culture all at once. Seemed like a losing battle. (laughs) (laughs) if you look at it from God's perspective. And just another simple example in the New Testament, Jesus, who I think knows a thing or two about interpreting scripture well and what's in the mind of God, is asked about divorce. And Jesus says, yeah, I know the Old Testament says that you can divorce a woman, but that was given to you because of your hardness of heart. So basically God, in a similar way to the example I was just saying, I think, rather than fight a losing battle, provides for ways in which divorce can be done. But Jesus's point is that's actually not the way God wants things to be. God was speaking within and to a particular cultural context when those laws were created around divorce, but actually God would prefer it to be very different than that. And so I think that's another like really explicit example of God saying something different to a different cultural context and highlighting the fact that God speaks within a culture using the words and images of that culture to make God's points. And that doesn't mean that God co-signs everything that has to do with those images, those words, or that culture more broadly. Okay, we have talked about this marriage metaphor a lot at this point between the sermon and the backdrop, and we've tried to do our best to do it justice and to talk about it seriously and try to understand what exactly is going on here and how can we understand it. Now, I'm sure that there are some of you that still find um, it a little uncomfortable that it's there. And that's okay. There are aspects of scripture that are challenging and that we have to wrestle with. And I think it's passages like this that remind us that we can always dig a little deeper and understand a little bit more about what God is actually saying in the pages of the Bible. And so if you are still a little uncomfortable, I would encourage you to use that as a reason to keep digging into scripture more and getting to know God more rather than a reason to push God away. I think we tried to highlight that there can be some really good fruit that comes out of that attempt to wrestle with scripture and an attempt to come to a deeper understanding of who God is. And kind of along with that, the last thing I wanted to talk about on this episode of The Backdrop is the idea of intimacy with God that we got into at the end of our sermon this past week. I wanted to highlight a few of the passages of scripture that speak to this idea. It is all the way through the Bible. In fact, um, Jamie Dye um, has written a book about the emotional closeness with God that God desires. It's called Christ and His Bride, and you can find that on Amazon if you are interested. But I wanted to highlight a few of the passages in the Bible that do inform this idea of an intimate relationship with God. We've already interacted with some of the passages from Jeremiah, but we did want to turn to a couple other passages just to give you a taste of where this shows up and how this shows up in other ways in other parts of scripture. So this first one is from Hosea chapter two. The book of Hosea is like an extended metaphor about this very thing. And this passage starting in verse 16 of chapter two is God speaking about Israel 
God's bride. Therefore, I am about to beguile her and lead her to the wilderness and speak to her very heart. And I will give her from there her vineyards and the valley of Accor, an opening to hope. And she shall sing out there as in the days of her youth, as on the day she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be on that day, said the Lord, she shall call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. And I will take away the names of the Baalim from your mouth and they shall no more be recalled by their name. And I will seal a pact with them on that day, with the beasts of the field and with the fowl of the heavens and the creeping things of the earth, and bow and sword and battle will I break from the earth, and I will make them lie down secure. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in right and in justice and in kindness and in mercy, and I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am Yahweh." And it shall be on that day I will answer, said Yahweh. I will answer for the heavens, and they shall answer for the earth. And the earth shall answer for the new grain, and for the wine, and for the oil. And they shall answer for Jezreel. And I will sow her for me in the land, and show mercy to lo Ruhamah. And I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And then this is from Song of Solomon or Song of Songs as it's sometimes called. And like we said this weekend, this has long been read as an allegory of the love between God and God's people. And so this is from uh, Song of Solomon chapter four. And I am starting in verse nine, but I really could read any of the book at all. And this is the king who many see as an allegory for God speaking in, starting in this verse. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one bead of your necklace. How beautiful your loving, my sister, bride. How much better your loving than wine. And the scent of your unguents than all perfumes. Nectar your lips drip, bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the scent of your robes like Lebanon's scent. A locked garden, my sister, bride. A locked well, a sealed spring. Your branches, an orchard of pomegranates with luscious fruit. If you're familiar with that book at all, you know that things can get pretty explicit. And it's interesting to read it as, in some sense, a description of God's love for God's people. In the New Testament, this shows up, of course, as well. There is so much about God's love for God's people and how we are supposed to love one another the way that God loves us. In John 15, when Jesus talks about us being as intimately connected to him as vines are to branches. I think that's getting at this same idea. But I wanted to read one passage from 1 Corinthians that's probably familiar to most of you, but it's 1 Corinthians 13. And I wanted to read it with you hearing it as a description of God's love for us. This is starting in verse four. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then last, I wanted to trace this metaphor all the way to the end of the Bible. Um, the last scene in Revelation is a scene of the new heavens and the new earth that God has brought about. It's in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them and they will be God's people and God himself will be with them. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And also he said this, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. So like we said this weekend, I think understanding and experiencing the intimacy that God desires for our relationship with God is a really important part of what we can hear in the book of Jeremiah, even if it was not the primary thing that the original hearers would have taken away from the metaphor. But it's still there, and it's still trustworthy and true. And so our prayer for you, our hope for you, is that that would more and more characterize your relationship with your God, that it would be as intimate and close emotionally and spiritually as that between two spouses. And that is as good a place as any to end for today. So thanks for listening to The Backdrop. Hopefully we will see you on Sunday. You can join us by Zoom. The link to it is on our website and anyone is welcome to join in. You don't need to turn your camera on or anything like that, but we hope you'll be there and uh, we'll see you next week.